chapter 10. We're going to back up a little bit. We're going to pick up this evening in verse 16, and then we're going to uh, finish up the chapter, hopefully. So we're going to start in verse 16 and finish up the chapter. But let me give you a little bit of review uh, before we get started. At the end of chapter 9, Jesus made a statement. He said this, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He showed the apostles the problem. There was a harvest that needed to be gathered, needed to be brought in. But there wasn't enough laborers to participate. So he instructed them. He said, pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out the laborers. Well, shortly after that, Jesus called all of his disciples to himself. He empowered them. He gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. And as Jesus prepared to send them out, if you remember from last week, he gave them specific instructions. He told them where to go and where not to go. He said they were to be sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Stay away from the Gentiles. Stay away from the land of Samaria for now. Right now we're ministering to the house of Israel. He told them what to do when they got there. If you remember correctly, he said preach. I want you to preach them. I want you to tell them the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is important stuff. You've got to tell them. And I also want you to do something else. I want you to heal the sick. I want you to cleanse the lepers. I want you to raise the dead and cast out demons. And as you're preaching, I want you to do these things. If they don't receive you, that's okay. Shake the dust off your feet and move on to the next town. It was an amazing thing. He was, the demonstration of the power of God was present when they were declaring the kingdom of heaven was at hand. So that's the difference between you and I. We could go out and declare the same thing, but... They had, the, they had the power. He had given them the ability to cleanse leprosy, raise the dead, cast out demons. So the power validified it. It verified what they were teaching, what they were preaching. But he also told them, there's some things I want you to leave behind. Leave behind what? Leave behind your money. Leave behind your extra pair of shoes. Leave behind your extra coat, the little sack that you can Leave it all behind. Don't take extra sandals. Leave it all behind. Why? Because he wanted them to be dependent upon him, fully dependent upon him. And he also said, don't hesitate to accept hospitality because those who work deserve to be fed. If someone invites you in to feed, that's okay, take that. And when we came to verse 16, Jesus began telling them the things that they should know before they go. He's gonna give them some instructions, some information. He's gonna sort of tell them, this is what I want you to expect as I send you out. He's gonna tell them persecution is on the way. And this was relevant for this single journey but it was also relevant for the rest of their lives. And it's also relevant for many Christians today. Look there at verse 16 with me. He said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. He already told them where to go. He told them about the work they had to do and the methods they were to use. Now he wants to tell them the bad news. There's going to be some difficulties. You're going to face some persecution. There's some things I want you to be aware of because, because you're like sheep. And I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Sheep usually aren't the ones being sent out in the attacking form. They're usually the ones that are hiding and afraid. So I'm sending you out like sheep in the midst of wolves. But I want you to act a certain way. I want you to, what did he say there? I want you to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove, as Christians. We're to be wise in dealing with the unbelieving world. 
We're supposed to be wise. We're to say the right thing at the right time, being aware of our location and, and even who we might offend. Remember when the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus and they questioned him about paying taxes to Caesar. Do you remember the story? He was trapped. They, they, they thought they had him. He did not use the occasion to put Caesar down. He didn't vilify Caesar. He didn't, he didn't try to, to say that Caesar was wrong. He simply said what? Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and give unto God what is God's. He didn't use it. He didn't, he didn't try to speak against him. You see, faithful disciples of Christ, we should be wise. We should be shrewd in dealing with the unbelieving world, but we should also be harmless as doves. We should be gentle, he says. Doves are gentle. They're innocent. Anybody afraid of a dove in here? Not usually. If there's one on your way, what do you do? You just keep walking. What do you know? It's going to fly away from you. Most of us aren't afraid of them. Being true to God's word and uncompromising in proclaiming the gospel does not require and should never include being abrasive, being coarse, being inconsiderate, being belligerent, being blatant, or even being blunt. You see, when dealing with the unbelieving world, Jesus is our example. He's the one we look to. How, when we look to his life, what do we see? Holiness. We see innocence. We see undefiled. We're to love our enemies and do good to those who hate us. When we evaluate the life of Christ, he committed no sin and there was no deceit found in his mouth, the scripture says. While being criticized, he didn't criticize in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Instead, he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. In 1 Corinthians 4.12, Paul said, when we are reviled, when we're criticized, when we're hated, we're to bless. When we're persecuted, Paul says we are to endure. When we're slandered, we're to encourage and exhort, the apostle Paul says. So after telling them they're being sent out in the midst of wolves, Jesus tells them who the wolves will be. And he warns them about where they're going to come from. Hey guys, I got some bad news for you. I'm sending you out. I'm going to send you out two by two. There's going to be, you're going to be like sheep in the midst of wolves. But let me give you a warning on where they're going to come from. There in verse 17. But beware of men, for they will, they will deliver you to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. He starts out with beware, be watchful, be on guard, be perceptive. To this point in their life, the disciples, they, had incur they haven't experienced much opposition or persecution. Sure, there was a little bit of pushback from the Pharisees, but Jesus took care of that pretty handily. He didn't have to, they weren't too worried about that. The first warning, did you notice who they had to beware of? The religious people, the religious leaders, they're going to be scourged in the synagogues. How could this happen? Why, how could they allow the scourging in the synagogues? That was normal. That was part of their life. You see, even under pagan rulers, the Jews were allowed to settle disputes among themselves. They wanted to handle their own business, if, so to speak. So they developed a court system to hear various types of cases. If you had a problem, you could bring it to the leaders of the synagogue. In every Jewish village or town, as well as settlements in the Gentile areas, they had a synagogue. The word syn synagogue, it means a gathering place. It's a place where you gather. And as much as possible, they would hold their own trials. They're in the synagogue. A judge would hear the case. The group of judges of counsel would hear the case. And they would decide if for one defendant or the plaintiff. They would decide innocence or guilt. And if convicted, they would minister, administer certain kinds of punishment. Usually resulted in scourging scourging these courts were all part of their system 
part of their part of their synagogue system in the new testament times the scourge it usually consisted of how many lashes 39 39 lashes is how they scourged one less the maximum they could scourge according to the jewish law was 40 so they did 39 times i wonder why maybe in case they miscounted one judge would call out the sentence one judge would announce the punishment and one more would do the scourging and all the others would count out loud as it happened jesus was telling the disciples as you preach as you minister in my name you can be sure of being brought before the jewish leaders in the synagogue now most of us would have gone all right we're done no thanks i'm not signing up for that job no 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 i think i'm good i think i'm just going to stay here no you see that's something that we really can't relate to is it we really don't know what it means to be scourged. Most of us have never been scourged or even, even beaten to a sense like, like they're talking about there. Most of us have never experienced that. We live here in the United States of America and we have freedom and rights and a court system, but that's not the way it is all the way around the world. In all, in all places, it's not that way. We can't relate to this. He also told his disciples there, you're going to be brought before the governmental leaders. Look there at verse 18. The religious leaders, and now we see the governmental leaders. You'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Now, if I was hearing this, I'd be thinking, well, that's pretty cool. I get to talk to governors and kings. Maybe they're going to have me over for dinner. They can invite me to the palace. We'll hang out. I'll share Christ. It'll work out really. No, no, it says they're going to be brought before. In order to be brought before, you know what that means? You have to be taken into custody. That means you have to be arrested before. You don't, you don't, you know, you're invited before is different than being brought before. So you're going to be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. It means you're going to be accused of crimes. You're going to be arrested and you're going to have an audience. And from the position of a criminal or a problem child or from this position, you're going to have their ear for a short period of time. How many of us would sign up for that if that was the job description? You're guaranteed to get arrested. Guaranteed, it's going to happen. Again, it's something we really can't relate to. We don't really know what it's like to be brought before a governor or a king. We've never faced somebody who holds our life in their hands face to face. We've never experienced it. We don't really understand it. He explained why it would happen. He told them there, for my sake. For my sake. It's going to happen because of me. It's going to be happen for my sake. I'm going to use your circumstance to get you an audience with people who otherwise couldn't be reached. Are you willing? Are you willing to endure what I'm asking you to do for my sake? You see, the world hates Christians because the world hates Christ. Every person who identifies himself with Christ through, through salvation, immediately you become a potential target of Satan and all of his evil forces. It's, it's, you have a target on your back, including evil men and governments. It's true. But look how he tells them to respond there in verse 19. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Do not worry. Do not worry. So if, if I called you and said, all right, guys, we're going to have a, a new ministry starting here at the church, and I'm going to send you guys out, and there's a pretty good chance you're going to get arrested, 
and you're going to go to jail, and you're going to face the judge. But don't worry about what you're going to say. Don't, don't worry about the charge. Don't worry about, don't worry about any of that stuff. Just, just go before the judge, and when you get in front of him, just say whatever God tells you to say. I don't think there'd be anybody on that sign-up sheet, would there? You know, I'm not going out there. No, I, got, I got work. I got busy. I got kids. I, I just I don't have time. This is, this is what he's telling them that's going to happen. I'm doing all of this, he says, so you can tell them about me. It's going to happen so you can share me. One commentator put it this way. He said, and I love this, it was not the humiliation which early Christians dreaded, not even the cruel pain and the agony, but many of them feared that their own unskillfulness in the words and defense might injure rather than commend the truth. It is the promise of God that when a man is on trial for his faith, the words will come to him. In other words, his position was the, way, the reason they were so concerned about this, not because of their safety, not because of the charges, because they were afraid they might not represent God rightly. They were so worried about, maybe, maybe, I did, maybe I'm not going to represent, if I don't know what to say, maybe I'll mess up the truth. Maybe, maybe the, the, the king or the leader won't get saved because I don't say it right. And Jesus is telling them, don't worry about what you're going to say. We'll take care of that part. Are you willing to go? That's the question. Are you willing to go? He was telling the disciples they would have persecution. And he also says there in verse 21, it's going to come from your own family. From the church, from the leaders, and from your family. Verse 21. Now brother will deliver a brother to death. And the father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. This is a promise of God. It's probably one that you're not writing on your note card to put on your bathroom mirror in the morning when you wake up every morning. Because look, listen to it. Now brother will deliver a brother to death. And a father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus promised his followers persecution would come from the religious people, from the government, but even from their own families. Even your own families aren't going to understand. And during the Roman persecutions of the second and the third centuries, an untold number of Christians were betrayed to the civil authorities. You know who betrayed them? Their brothers, fathers, children. This tragic practice has been repeated many times throughout history. In fact, it still goes on. In, in some places in, in, in our day. One commentator said this, he said, in certain religious cultures, a funeral service is held for a family member who becomes a Christian. They automatically hold a funeral. He's dead to us. We don't want anything to do with him or her again. They have a funeral. They mourn. They're done. They never want to see him again. All because they chose to follow Jesus Christ. Because in the eyes of their relatives, they're no longer alive. Can you imagine? Again, here in the United States, we really can't imagine, can we? As I studied these passages, I looked for, how do we apply this to our lives? There's not a whole lot of application for us because we don't live in those places. We have the freedom. We have the ability to say what we want and do what we want. We can believe what we want. In fact, it's encouraged and celebrated. Even if it's crazy and off the wall, it's probably too much freedom to our demise in some places. In the event of persecution, Jesus told them what to do. It's something that we all need to hear. What did he say? Endure to the end. Endure. Keep going. Don't give up. 
If you do, you will be saved. If you endure to the end, you will be saved. Many times when you're counseling somebody, when you're talking to somebody, they're having a difficult time. Many times they just need to hear, keep going. Stay faithful. Don't give up. The Lord's in this. Keep moving forward. Don't, don't, it's okay. Keep going. Endure. And just as a side note, endurance doesn't produce salvation, but I do believe it's evidence of our salvation. In other words, we don't, we aren't saved as a result of our endurance, but I think the endurance through the difficulty is what proves that we're saved. But he also told his disciples there in verse 23, so when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For surely I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Who else do we know that did that? Isn't that what Paul did? He fled from city to city. He ran from city to city. When persecution became so severe in one place that he could no longer minister effectively, what did he do? He left and went to another one. He was not afraid of the persecution. Many times he was severely beaten before he left the city. We know at least once he was stoned and left for dead. That one he went back in the city. He didn't try to test the limits of the opposition, but he endured whatever ridicule, whatever reviling, beatings, and imprisonments, whatever was necessary while he ministered but he left the place when there was when he was no longer effective for the gospel when he was no longer effective he shook the dirt off his feet and left but he endured all he had to while he was there i often wonder and i'll I'll put myself in the spot how much would i endure of the apostle paul's life before i quit how many beatings would it take probably not too many How many people would have to say something bad about me? How much discouragement would have to settle in? How much physical illness before we quit and go, ah, it's not, if God wanted me to do it, if God was in it, I wouldn't have these problems. Look at the life of the Apostle Paul. They were clear. This is the pattern of every pastor and minister, any faithful missionary. This is how we should follow. How long do we serve? Till we're no longer effective there. But it's hard, but it's difficult. You keep serving. You keep doing. Well, I'm not doing children's ministry anymore because, because the kids don't like me. I thought God called you. Well, he did, but they don't like me. So I'm, no, you keep going until you're no longer effective. Well, I don't, I don't want to do that, that job. I want to I upgrade my ministry. What, what, I'm tired of that. No, no, you keep going until you're no longer effective to what he called you to do or until he moves you on. But I want you to notice a difficult section there in verse 23. I don't want to skip over it. He says, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. What does that mean? It seems to imply that before the disciples make it through all the cities of Israel, Jesus is coming back. The only problem is he's the one teaching them right now, which means he hasn't left yet. They're saying, I'm sending you out. Before you make it to all the cities, he will come back. If this is the meaning that some people interpret it as, it, it, it can't be true. It, it, he, he hasn't come back. We're still waiting on his return. We know that he hasn't come back. And since it's not possible for him to lie, we must look and say, well, is there, is there something we're missing here? Could this be something else? I believe when it talks about the Son of Man comes, in this passage here, I believe it's talking about his coming judgment upon Judea, on Jeru- upon Jerusalem, which did happen in 70 A.D. They wouldn't make it through all the cities before he comes, to, and it, it's judged. And it was likely before the gospel ever came to all the cities. You understand? He goes on. He says, now he's going to, as we come to verse 24, 
He's going to instruct them on discipleship. He says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher, and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? In other words, what he's saying is a disciple doesn't outrank his teacher. A servant doesn't outrank his master. In fact, they shouldn't even be trying to. They just, they're trying to be like their teacher and like their master. If the master and the teacher is seen as being from the house of Beelzebub or the house of Satan, wouldn't they also believe the disciple and the servant are from the house of Satan as well? So that's what, that's what you can expect. People are going to think you're from the house of Satan. Of course they would. That would only make sense. And because of this, he says verse 20, in verse 26, Therefore, do not fear them. Don't be afraid of them. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. I'm sending you out. Persecution is going to happen. Don't be afraid. We have nothing to fear because one day all that's in darkness will be turned into the light. One day the Lord will reveal the secrets of men's hearts. Expose them and judge them. Don't worry about it. Our task is not to please men, but to proclaim what God told them to proclaim. Teach them the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do the miracles. Do the things I told you. The present judgment of men shouldn't frighten us, and that's what he's telling them. Don't worry about what men think of you. Don't worry about how they feel about you. Because really what we should be considering is the future judgment. Look at verse 27. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and body in hell. For the second time, Jesus says, do not fear. The truth will prevail. Go out and preach it with boldness, despite the dangers of persecution. He's telling the harm that they can do you, they can kill you. It's only temporary. Instead, fear the one who's able to destroy both the body and the soul. You see, mankind, the worst that somebody could ever do to you is kill you. They can't take away your salvation from you. They can't take it away. Yeah, there may be a price to pay for speaking God's truth. There could be. And proclaiming his word from the housetops. But in the end, God says, I love you too much. I'm going to vindicate you. It's going to be okay. It's only temporary. As the Apostle Paul set off and was determined to go to Jerusalem, despite many warnings from his friends, a certain prophet came along named Agapus. He came down from Judea. As he met with the Apostle Paul, he took Paul's belt and he bound his own hands and his own feet. He said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In other words, he's prophesying to Paul. Paul, this is what the Lord says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles. In other words, he's telling, Agabus is telling Paul, Paul, if you keep going to Jerusalem, they're going to bind you. They're going to turn you over to the Gentiles. All his Paul's friends that were there, they began crying. Paul said, what are you doing? Weeping. You're breaking my heart. Stop. For I am ready. I'm ready. He says, I'm ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul had no fear of those who could only kill the body. He's told him not to fear twice. It's funny. 
the Lord moves on our heart to do something, to step out in faith. And what do we go? I'm afraid. I'm scared. I can't do it. What if my family doesn't like me? What if my friends don't like me? What if my job, how how am I going to pay the bills? He told me not to take any money with him. How's it going to all happen? I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I can't can't make it happen. What do I do? I I don't understand how this could work, so I'm afraid. Twice, do not fear. We see Paul was more concerned with his obedience and what would happen if he disobeyed. He was more concerned about being obedient than what, what could possibly happen. He didn't care what man could do to him. He understood eternity. He was determined to finish the race that was set before him. And he wouldn't, would not suffer or die. He knew that he would not suffer or die a single moment before the Lord had appointed the Lord had a time for him. It was coming, and Paul didn't care. Whenever it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be when I see him. He said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Either way, I win. If I win, I get to share the gospel more and serve the Lord. If I die, I get to be with the Lord. Either way, I'm a winner. This is hardcore. This is in the face of persecution. We can't understand that. I'm convinced that we really can't, in our, in our society, praise the Lord, we're here, but we really can't understand what he's talking about there. He goes on to illustrate the point. He says in verse 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are more valuable than they. The copper coin. It's the smallest denomination they had. It was worth a sixteenth of a denarii. A denarii was a day's wage. A sixteenth of a denarii. One copper coin bought two sparrows. He's saying these birds were essentially worthless. If one of these worthless birds can't fall to the ground, and that word fall, sometimes it's interpreted hop. So either can't hop on the ground or can't fall to the ground without the Lord being aware of it. Doesn't he care about us more? So much so that he knows the number of hairs on your head. Now, for some of us, that's easy. For others, you know, we're we're losing some. But anybody that's got hair on their head, how many do you think you have? Take a guess. What's the average number of hairs on the human head? Any ideas? Well, 140,000. Go home and try to count them. Good luck. If he takes notice of such things as a bird either falling to the ground or hopping along the ground. If he takes notice of the number of hairs on your head, why would we ever say, God, where are you? God, why have you left me? God, are you there? Be confident. The Lord knows everything about you. The good, the bad, and the ugly. He's got it all. We try to hide it, but he knows everything about us. And you know what the amazing thing is? He loves us just the same. All the good, all the bad. See, we think he only sees the good, but he loves us exactly the same. He knows us better than we know ourselves. When we submit to his will, we're admitting that. We're, we're realizing that, that when I submit to the Lord's will, I'm saying, Lord, you know me better than I know me, so it doesn't make any sense to me, but you said go, so I'm going to go. Because the Lord knows them and us so well, look what he says there in verse 32. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. 
as a follower of Jesus Christ, we have the obligation to confess Jesus publicly before men. And if we will not be public, outward, of our allegiance to him, we can't expect him to be public about his allegiance to us. That's what he's saying there. In other words, let me make it easy to understand. There's no such thing as an undercover Christian. There's no secret Christians. There's no undercover. Now, there might be Christians in places where they mention the name of Christ, they get killed. They're not undercover Christians. I'm sure they will confess to everyone they think will understand. In the United States of America, we can confess Christ all day long, and what's going to happen to us? We have the freedom of speech. We can do it all day long. In other words, all of us as Christians, each of us should have enough evidence from our lives that can be seen by the world that would convict us if we were ever charged with it. Unfortunately, many modern Christians, if we were arrested for the crime of following Jesus, and they were tried in a court of law, they would just have the charges dismissed for a lack of evidence. Think about it. What's the evidence in your life of you following Christ? Facebook. That's what we want everyone to see, right? That's what we, put our, that's, that's what we put our best face forward. What on there is about Christ? Twitter, whatever the social media is. What about what, what, your home? If we were to check your bookshelf, if we check your music list in your iPhone or iPod or music thing, if we checked your history in your internet browser, what would it convict you of? Would, would there be enough there to say they're a Christian, they're a follower of Jesus Christ? Or would they leave them going, eh, I don't know, maybe, could be. You see, there should be enough evidence, especially in the country we live in, to convict us of following Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, what Christ is to you on earth, that you will be to Christ in heaven. And then he said, I shall repeat the truth. Whatever Jesus Christ is to you on earth, you will be to him in the day of judgment. If he be dear and precious to you, you will be precious and dear to him. If you thought everything of him, he will think everything of you. Wow. What, do I, what does Christ really mean to me? How much evidence is there? What does your life say? How important is he to you? And I don't think that's just measured by the number of people that work in ministry. I think it speaks to us just as loud. Just because you work in ministry doesn't mean you have it covered. I, what does he mean to you? You see, I believe that when it says to confess Christ, it means much more than just making a statement with your lips. I'm a Christian, I confess Christ. You see, I believe it means backing up that statement with your life. The way that you live your life. As James would say, I'll show you my, my faith by my good works. When we make a statement, it's not just, oh, I made a statement, now I'm good. If I believe what I'm confessing, it's going to produce change in my life. Maybe not overnight. Maybe it'll take time. But there'll be a conviction. There'll be a change that little by little, I begin to be convicted by the Holy Spirit, and there begins a change that happens in me. It's one thing to say Jesus Christ is Lord, and quite a different thing to surrender to him and obey his will. You see, it's one thing to sit in church and go, yeah, Jesus, you're, you're my Savior, but I really don't want to do what your word says. I don't really want to forgive. I, I know that, it, I, no, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm not there yet. Oh, Lord, I, I, I don't really want to do that because, well, it, 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 it just changes my life too much. 
you see, as are they really a follower of Jesus? If you're not willing to follow the word of God, are you really following the God of the word? It's real simple. He goes on to tell them, tell the followers there's going to be conflict. Look what he says in verse 24, or verse 34 rather. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And the man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, once we've identified with Jesus Christ and we've confessed him, you voluntarily enter into a war. Not a war that we started. It's a war that God declared upon Satan way back in the book of Genesis. And the only way a believer can escape this conflict is to deny Christ and compromise his witness, which would be sin. And if you were to do that, if that could happen, you would be at war with God and with yourself. Warren Wearsby put it this way. He said, we will be misunderstood and persecuted even by those who are closest to us. Yet we must not allow this to affect our witness. It is important that we suffer for Jesus' sake and for righteousness' sake and not because we ourselves are difficult to live with. That's not what he's talking about. There's a difference between the offense of the cross and an offensive Christian. Wow. Each believer, what he's saying, must make the decision to take up his cross or her cross and follow Jesus. Now, I know that in our culture, we don't really understand that. We think, you know, I, that means I got to live with myself. That means I got to deal with my sin. No, no. Do you know what taking up your cross meant? It, mean you, it, 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 means, it meant you were on the way to crucifixion. You would pick up the beam, they would strap it across your back, you would declare your sin all the way over to the place of crucifixion. To pick up your cross means I'm going to my death. It's not just dealing with myself. It's so much more than that. He's saying you're going to go to your death. You must make the decision to take up your cross and follow Jesus all the way to the point where you no longer have breath in your lungs. You must finish the race. And the day that you picked up your cross and walked to your death, you proclaim that crime. The believer is called to walk to their death, proclaiming his Savior or her Savior, or proclaiming the gospel. Are we willing to do that? You see, Jesus, I think we've made him uh, a little soft, a little more relative, a little more easy to deal with. You see, he wasn't really that way. He was black and white. Either you're following me or you're not following me. Either you're doing the things that I'm saying or you're not doing the things that I'm saying. And I'm telling you, persecution will happen. Difficulty will happen from the church, from the family, from the government. It's going to take place. Should we really be surprised when the government of the United States of America is threatening and entertaining bills that are affecting our freedom, especially religiously? No! Why? Because he told them it was going to happen. Why should we? We should be blessed that it's not happening yet. But it doesn't mean we should be, oh, I can't believe this is going to happen. Of course it's going to happen. Why would you think it's not going to happen? If it was going to happen to them, it's going to happen to us. Persecution in the church, I think it's on the way personally. 
but I also think it'll do a little bit of good for the church. I think it will help. I think we'll be able to see who the real believers are and who they aren't. In the next few verses, Jesus tells the disciples some good news. He says, hey, not everyone's going to reject you. Look at verse 40. He who receives you receives me. He who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. He who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. He's telling them, you're representatives of me. You're representatives of the king. Those who receive you, they receive me. and They'll be rewarded. Those who reject you, they're rejecting me. If they bless you, they're blessing me. We should keep this in mind when dealing with God's people, shouldn't we? Think about it. We're all representatives of Christ carrying the gospel. Yet sometimes we can deal with each other so harshly, so bitterly, so angrily, so gossipingly. Is that a word? I made it up. When dealing with each other, consider the fact that you're dealing with God's children. Whether it be in a relationship, whether it be in a friendship, whether it be in a marriage. Your wife, she's God's daughter. Girlfriend, she's God's daughter. Husband, it's God's son. How would you treat them if God was around? Would it change? I bet it would. I bet it would. How far are you willing to go for the gospel? See, that he's telling his apostles, I'm going to send you out. Persecution? Guaranteed. It's going to hurt. It's going to be painful. People are going to reject you. The church, they're going to scourge you in the synagogues. They're going to make fun of you. They're going to ridicule you. They're going to laugh at you. How far are you willing to go? Will you you walk into work and share the gospel if that's what the Lord calls you to do? Or are you afraid you might lose your job? Will you share the gospel with someone who might assault you physically? Or are you afraid you might get hurt? Will you share the gospel with those people? And I, and I, don't, pro, I don't say go just go do it in a blanket. As the Lord leads, are you willing to take the step, the bold step of faith that I'm going to share with this person? I'm going to tell this person. I want to share a story I heard a long time ago, but I ran across it recently. And I'll close with this story. Long ago in the days when the ruling passion of the Roman Emperor Nero was the extermination of Christians, there lived and served him a band of soldiers known as the Emperor's Wrestlers. Fine, loyal men they were, picked from the best and the bravest of the land. They were recruited from the great athletes of the Roman amphitheater. In the great amphitheater, they upheld the arms of the Emperor against all challengers. Nobody could beat them. Before each contest, they would stand before the emperor's throne. Then through the courts of Rome would ring the song or the cry, We, the wrestlers, wrestling for thee, O emperor, to win for thee the victory, and from thee the victor's crown. When this great Roman army was sent to fight in a faraway land, no soldiers were braver, no soldiers were more loyal than this band of wrestlers led by their centurion, Vespasian. 
Pretty soon, news reached Nero about the Christian faith that seemed to know no bounds, that seemed to leap all barriers. Pretty soon, Nero was told that these wrestlers, they'd been believers. They became saved, many of them. In the Roman emperor, to, 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 to Nero, to be a Christian meant death, even to those who served Nero. So that this decree was straightaway dispatched to the centurion Vespasian. If there be any among the soldiers who cling to the faith of the Christian, they must die. The decree came to Vespasian in the dead of winter. The soldiers were camped on the shore of a frozen inland lake. The winter had been hard, but the many hardships they had endured together had only served to unite them more closely. So it was with a sinking heart that Vespasian the centurion read the emperor's message. Yet to a soldier, there is one word supreme, and it is duty. Vespasian called the soldiers together, and he asked them the question. Are there any among you who cling to the faith of the Christian? If so, let him step forward. Forty wrestlers instantly stepped forward two paces, respectfully saluted, and stood at attention. Vespasian paused. He hadn't expected so many. The decree came from the emperor, he said, that any who cling to the faith of the Christian must die. For the sake of your country, your fellow soldiers, your loved ones, renounce this false faith. Not one of the forty moved. Until sundown, until sundown I shall await your answer, said Vespasian. Sundown came and again the question was asked, are there any among you who cling to the faith of the Christian? If so, let him step forward. Again, the 40 wrestlers stepped forward and stood to attention. Vespasian pleaded with them long and earnestly without prevailing upon a single man to deny his Lord. Not one of them would deny his Lord. Finally, he said, the decree of the emperor must be obeyed but I am not willing that your blood be on your fellow soldiers. I'm going to order that you march out upon the lake, that lake of ice, and I'm going to leave you there to the mercy of the elements. But I want you to know, fires will be burning on the shore, and I, your commander, will be waiting to welcome anyone willing to renounce this false faith. The 40 wrestlers were stripped of their clothes, and then without a word, they turned and assembled into columns of four. They marched out towards the lake of ice. As they marched, they broke into a chorus with the old chant from the arena. Forty wrestlers wrestling, wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory, and from thee the victor's crown. All through the long hours of the night, Vespasian the centurion stood by his campfire, and he waited. And he waited as he listened. The wrestler's song got weaker and weaker as the hours went by. As it neared morning, one man, overcome by the exposure, crept quietly towards the fire. In the extremity of his suffering, he couldn't take it any longer. He renounced his Lord. And then faintly, but clearly, from out of the darkness came the song, 39 wrestlers wrestling for thee. O Christ, to win for thee the victory, and from thee 
the victor's crown. Vespasian looked at the figure drawing closer to the fire. And he looked out into the darkness as he listened to the song of faith. Off came his helmet, down went his shield, and he sprang out onto the ice crying, 40 wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win thee the victory and from thee the victor's crown. In the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our difficulty, people are watching. People are listening. People are watching how you and I respond to those things. And it might be the way that we handle the situation is the very thing that brings them to Christ. Jesus asked the disciples, are you willing to be persecuted for my sake? Are you willing to go to jail so I can give you a word for a king that you would never get a platform to speak of? What are you willing to endure for the gospel of Jesus Christ? How much does it really mean to you? Let's pray. Father, the gospel has become a word that we just use. It rolls off the tip of our tongue. I don't know that we fully understand what it cost you. I don't know that we fully understand the power that it contains. I don't know that we use it the way that we should. But Lord, tonight we ask you to teach us. Minister to us. Lord, if there's someone in our life that needs to hear that gospel, and we've been holding back for fear of the way they would think of us, Maybe we haven't shared it at work because we thought we might lose our job. Maybe we won't put a cross on our desk or whatever because we think we might get in trouble. Lord, may we look to the example that you've set for us in Scripture. May we expect persecution and we boldly proclaim you. For if we don't proclaim you publicly, you say that you won't proclaim us. Lord, that's not our desire. Lord, would you help us be bold? Would you help us be brave? Would you help us be strong? In Jesus' name, amen.